Hey, Founder Fam, before we dive into another incredible conversation, I want to share something really special with you. Whether you're just joining us or you've been following us since the beginning, you've been a critical part of our community working to change entrepreneurial education. I started Founder almost a decade ago with the mission to provide entrepreneurs access to the world's greatest business leaders. Our goal was to break down barriers to entrepreneurial education, and that's taken us on a journey from Founder Magazine to this podcast and beyond. And today marks the next step in that journey, Founder Plus. I'm proud to introduce you to Founder Plus, which is an all-access pass to each of our online courses and programs and their proven frameworks for success. It puts every strategy we've compiled from world-class instructors at your fingertips while connecting you to a global network of like-minded entrepreneurs. Founder Plus will take your business to the next level for today and tomorrow. So whether you've just joined our family or you've watched us grow from humble beginnings, we're really thrilled to have you join us in this exciting new phase of making the founder brand and this company the world's best entrepreneurial community to launch and grow your business. So finally, before we get into today's episode, I'm inviting you to come back, check out Founder Plus and go to founder.com forward slash membership. I'm really excited, guys. This is an incredible new evolution of entrepreneurial education, and our mission is really to get as many of these founders that we interview to teach and also give back on the Founder Plus platform and really go more in depth with the knowledge and the experiences and the lessons learned that they're sharing all in Founder Plus. So guys, please go check it out if you're enjoying these interviews. That's it from me. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now let's jump in. who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Steve Case, Gary Vee, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey, Founder fam. Welcome back to another episode of the Founder Podcast. Today, we're speaking with James Sin Moody, the co-founder and CEO of a company called Sendal, who are unlocking the power of big business delivery networks for small businesses. This is a company I've used in my e-commerce businesses, and Sendal was also Australia's first technology B Corp and first 100% carbon neutral delivery service. And we're going to talk to him about disrupting the shipping industry, the importance of building company values from day one, and really building a business around an eco-friendly model and sustainability. Please welcome to the Founder Podcast, James Sin Moody. James, thanks so much for joining us in the studio. It's always great to do in-person interviews. Welcome. Thanks. Great to be here. So the first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? Yeah, well, I, um, I sort of fell into it. Mm-hmm. I think some quite a few founders do the same thing. I, um, My wife and I um, had actually 
decided we were on sabbatical. Yes. After some really big big roles from both of us, and yes. we decided it was was her turn to to pursue her career, and so I signed up to be the primary carer oh, wow. of our two little boys for five years. Yeah. Wow. And as part of that, um, uh, really was like I had two young kids. Uh, what do I do now? I had a whole lot of baby clothes, and so I started a little business where I could give those baby clothes away. It was a it was a giving marketplace. Yes, and um, you know, in the early days, it was you know okay. So I can give them away to people who want to pick it up, and then we realised we wanted to give it away to people who could live in different suburbs. Yes. And so we started to explore the, the the real problem, which was how to make it really easy to ship something from anyone's home to anywhere in Australia. And what we found, we talked to Australia Post. Um, they wanted everyone to line up at the post office and, you know, you don't want to do that. Yes. Um, talk to uh, point to points, the Ubers and that yes. sort of thing. Very expensive. Yes. Until suddenly we found that there was this um, infrastructure that's out there. There's so many trucks driving around, but those trucks are half empty half the time. Mm. And so he said, can we help you fill your trucks? And that turned into an entire logistics network. And that was how Sendal was born. Yeah. Wow. And- for the giving marketplace, can you talk us through, like I want to kind of pull that back, like the giving marketplace, how long did it take to bring that to life? What did the model look like before you even pivoted to Sendall? Yeah, so that that model was really like understanding friction. I think one of the one of the interesting things around starting a company that's always about what what is the problem you want to solve? Yeah. And can you love that problem? And for us, the original problem was how do we how do we facilitate reuse? Yes. Right? How do we make it really easy to help people give things that they no longer need away? Because yes. we knew that that would actually help extend the life of that item. It would help people who didn't have much money to get things they no longer needed. Like that was a really good problem. And so we, we got deep into that problem. We realized that liquidity was the biggest thing. Yes. You know, if I've gone and tied up the house and I've got a bag of baby clothes or I've got a box of books or whatever it might be, how do I make it really easy to get that to somebody who, who needs it? And so then we we started to dive into all the aspects of that, and we realised that you know there's actually a business model in here. I think the first, the next thing is if you can find a really good problem, yes, then what's the business model around that problem? Mm. And we realised that while you can give things away for free, maybe we can make money on the shipping. Mm. It was almost like taking the Amazon business model and turning it upside down, where Amazon would you know sell you stuff and give you free shipping. Yes, we will give you the free stuff, but you just pay for the shipping. And um, so that's why that's really what got us delving into logistics. Gotcha. It was actually the business model for a free shipping network. But um, fast forward, it took two years. Two years to build. We got about fifty thousand people transacting on the on the on the, the on, two sided marketplace. On the two sided marketplace. So we got yes. liquid, which was great. But um, it was the end of two thousand and fourteen, and a whole lot of eBay sellers. It was Christmas, and all of a sudden, eBay sellers started to pile in, and what they were doing was they were actually hacking. Because everything was free, they started hacking that for shipping. So it'd be almost like I will, you know, I will sell you this thing on eBay and now I will give it to you um, on this this free shipping network. And so like, why are they doing that? Because the other thing is, um, you know, we could have tried to stop it. It was actually interfering with the network, right? Yes. It's like I've got a box, I'm, I'm baby clothes, baby clothes, baby clothes box that says, you know, for Marjorie. Yes. And, you know, only Marjorie could claim that box. And it yes. was... Um, so we said, do we, do we stop them? But then we started to dig deeper. And what we realized was that not only were we the ones who needed a cheap, affordable, 
you know, minimum order quantity one so you can have one thing door-to-door delivery service, but actually every other small business in Australia that e-small business e-commerce provide in Australia needed exactly the same thing. And Australia actually had a functional monopoly in place, which was Australia Post. Mm. And they had no other choice. And so we we realized, well, maybe, maybe there's something here and we separated it out as a as a separate service. Yep. Really to service all those yep. initial eBay sellers. Um, and when we did that within a month, we doubled our volume. Yep. Second month we doubled again and we realized, you know, that's the rocket ship. And yep. uh, I think one of the things when you get product market fit, like deeply, deeply get it, you really know. And so we realized that, yeah, maybe our purpose was not to help things see their full lifespan, but actually maybe our purpose was to be the plumbing for all the giving networks, all the small business e-commerce folk out there. In fact, what we realized, our purpose was to level the playing field between the, the, the small businesses who, frankly, pay a lot more than they should for logistics and get a lot less <clears throat> between them and the really big ones. So you, you mentioned something interesting. When you get product market fit, you really, really know. Can you describe that to us? Because I think it's an illustrious thing for many mm. and it's something that people don't even focus on sometimes. Yeah, there's a great book called Traction by Weinberg. Yeah, I'm not sure. If, yeah. Yeah. And I think for me as an engineer, that's actually the best way of describing, actually it's not product market fit, it's product traction channel market fit. Yes, and it's when those three things line up. And I, I always think about it like this slot machine where, you know, you've got a, a product. Yeah. And if you're, you know, sometimes you end up, you've actually secretly got three or four products because you haven't been focused enough. Yes. And you've got a market. And I think about, you know, um, even in those early days, in fact, we had, you know, our giving network, we actually had three things that we were doing in there. We had a couple of, lots of different markers. We had the, the folk who were, you know, environmentally conscious. We had folk who were, uh, didn't have, you know, uh, you know, uh, needed affordability. We had all these things, and then we had all these channels. But really, product market for, fit for me is like when you pull that slot machine, you find there's actually one product, and there's one market, and you found that traction channel that really works. Mm. And you know, with Sendle, we were really lucky because we had one product. We we can we can ship a parcel from anyone to anyone with a minimum of one, yes. right? And we had one market, which is small business e-commerce. Yep. It was very, very clear. And funnily enough, the initial traction channel was just word of mouth because everyone, you know, we were half the price. I, we could sell, send a parcel. We could send 10, uh, 20 kilograms, like, you know, uh, from Sydney to Perth for half the price of lining up at the post office and we'll pick it up from your door. And, uh, yeah, that really, you know, you can just feel it when that, that everything lines up and it's like, wow, this business is taking off and we don't seem to be... You know, it seems really, really easy. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So, was this your first business? Well, the the two sided marketplace was that your first business? Yeah, it was. Um, until then, I'd had a career in um, firstly as an engineer. So I was I was a satellite engineer, helped yeah. build Australia's first satellite in thirty years, and then I worked for the CSIRO for for seven years, looking at international engagement, business development. So, talk me through, I guess. Bringing Sendal to life, did you raise outside money? Did you code up this logistics network? How did that work? Because I think like outside looking in to create effectively your first business, uh, you know, a logistics network, taking on Australia Post, they have a massive monopoly, like that seems quite intimidating. Yeah, I think um, I think the other thing, I'd actually talked to a lot of other founders and, you know, listening to stories. And I think one of the big things 
um, I, I remember there was some really great advice I got in the early days, which is particularly if you're going to, you know, you can either bootstrap. Yes. And that's tough, particularly if you, as you mentioned, have got a giant competitor with huge amounts of resources, or you're going to have to make the decision at some point that you will take on capital. And if you're going to take on capital, the best way, of, the, the thing you need to realize is your business doesn't, it's not like this, it, it really is yeah. steps. Yes. And a great way of thinking about those steps is in terms of value creation milestones. Right. Value what creation. are the milestones? What are the milestones that you're trying to reach to get from, you know, where you are today? And again, you've created a certain amount of every everyone who started a business has created a certain amount of value. Yes. Right? It could be twenty customers or it could be two thousand customers who love the and I've got product market, you know, I've got the, the Ellis score of yeah. fifty of product market, like whatever that value is, and I've got you know, so much revenue, whatever. I could be pre-revenue, but I've got an idea. That is value. The real thing is, what's the what what milestone am I trying to get to? Yes. And and that could be, okay, now I want to get to generating revenue and I want to get to twenty thousand dollars annual, you know, MRR. Month, MRR, whatever, whatever it might be. Yes. And if you can think of your business in terms of those milestones and ideally go a few milestones, what it what happens is you start realizing, you know, raising capital. Right, it's it's what it does is it basically aligns your capital strategy with your plan, because raising capital in a, for a startup is really about I'm I, my my analogy is like you're on a boat, right? You're on a boat, and to begin with, it might be you know me and my co-founder, you know one's rowing, the other one's navigating, then we take it in turns, and and what you're really doing is every single you're trying to get to an island, and on that island, which is a value creation milestone, there's you know more provisions. There's more people. You can upgrade the boat, right? And you're doing that in order to get to the next island. Yes. And those islands are, you know, seed or, you know, and then series A and then series B island and series C. And every time what you're doing is basically trying, the waters get choppier, mm. you know, the boat's getting bigger. It's, but yes. really you're taking those steps and each one of those is a value creation milestone. I found that, that really useful as a construct Yes. As a way of thinking about, okay, we're going to go from here to, okay, we're going to demonstrate we can be a courier, right? And then, you know, this next, and then we're going to say we need to get really significant traction in the Australian market. And then our Series B was about moving to the US. Yes. And, and now we sent a part, you know, and then get to Series C. Now we sent a parcel from every single three-digit zip in America to every other three-digit zip in America. Okay, now let's see if we can lean into, you know, being a full-service carrier. Okay, now let's go to Canada. Like all these are different milestones, milestones that you basically do and, and the, the process of, of raising is about really understanding what resources you'll need to get from here to there. Yeah, I really like that analogy. So for your two-sided marketplace with the gifting of the babyware, I mean, like you use babyware, um, did you raise money for that? Uh, yeah, we did. We we actually raised some very initial, and it was funny as a different um, sort of raise. Yes. Um, but yeah, we we raised some money. It was uh, NRMA backed us. Oh, in the very early days, okay. uh, and we were very fortunate that um, it was much more of a community based investment thesis at that yes. point, um, a social venture. Yeah. Um, but when we realised that, hey, you know, we're we're a potential competitor post and actually then started to prove that out. Yes. Um, you know, they backed us again, which was fantastic. And they they basically they they well they led our seed round. Yep. Got you. And so 
for Sendal, when did you, how long after you kind of gone, okay, wow, we got traction here, we got product market fit, how long did it take you to raise your, was that a, your seed or, or your Series A? Yeah, we, we that was our seed. Yeah. That's six months. Yeah. Okay. When so pretty fast. Was, yeah. Yeah. You know, back to the whole rocket ship when you're yep. when you're doubling. At that point, we were doubling every month. Yep. Um, in those early days, you start going, and 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 I think the the other thing that's really interesting is, and so, so it's, there's one thing which is about the product, and we yes. really see. Yes. Again, you know, it's a bit magical. Yes. You know, when you press a button, you book a parcel. It's thirty seconds, and yep. the parcel disappears, and you know, in in one part of the country, and reappears the following day in the other part. Like that's yeah. a magical experience. Yeah, no. And we realised that point that yeah, we we actually had something that was, you know, cheaper, faster, hundred percent carbon neutral. We've we've offset every parcel, so more sustainable and more convenient door to door than basically a monopoly that had been in place, you know, for for uh, for a hundred years. Um, we were basically finding an alternative solution by using infrastructure more cleverly and more efficiently. Yeah, no, look, it's a great service. And uh, like uh, this water bottle, in the early days when uh, my now ex, when she started this little e-commerce business, she didn't have enough volume to have a 3PL, right? Because mm-hmm. you have to do at least you know 500 orders a month, 1,000 orders a month. But you can set up your Shopify store and you can be selling, you know, maybe a hundred a month or two hundred a month, and you, you're doing your own picking and packing. You you know you produce the product in in China or wherever, you ship it to your house. But then you either you got two options: you either go to Australia Post, which is more expensive, or you can use your guys' service and then you guys come every morning, pick up everything, and then scan yep. them, and then off you go. And that's uh, effectively how she kind of got that business up and going until it was ready for 3PL and then set up 3PL in China, then eventually set up 3PL in America and Australia, but still use a sender for some random kind of, you know, if you want to get it faster to the customer, all sorts of things. So very familiar with the service. To be honest, I thought you guys were a division of Australia Post or something. (laughs) Uh, It's interesting. I think um, this is the thing, you know, a monopoly wrapped in a habit yeah is invisible mm. and a lot of folk until we came along didn't even think that there could be an alternative mm-hmm. and, and this is what we see all around the world right like yeah. whether it's australia post or canada post or you yeah. know there's an more of an oligopoly in the us but it's like uh really understanding that you know frankly things don't have to be this way mm. and and you're absolutely right for the small the really small seller who's just getting started everything there's lots of things stacked against them yes and one of the big things is actually the shipping yes right there's no way again that 10 that it should cost 45 dollars to line up at the post office and send a parcel from 10 10 kilograms from one side of the country to the other yeah. amazon is not paying 45 dollars to send that parcel right yes and that's a huge disadvantage and so we realized and and yeah frankly i mean you know we're doing that for less than half the price and we realized that actually we can we can help tip the tables the amount of cross subsidy that's going on we can by just focusing on that emerging part of the market like we can absolutely level that playing field and turn the tables oh 110 percent. it's a big business there's a lot of people 
starting small e-commerce brands or small businesses that use a service like this. Yeah. yeah. And I love the fact that we can even start to outperform. I think one of the one of the cool things about technology is when you can have, you know, services uh, for the really small folk who are nimble that can be the same or even better. Mm. Right? Um, we can now send a parcel in two days from Seattle to LA. And we can do that um, you know, for less than four dollars. Yeah. Crazy. Right? And that's crazy. And, you know, for me that's amazing. Now here's a here's a you know a small business that can basically compete like truly compete um, with the really big folk. So talk to me around kind of the technology side uh, because I think that's like, that's that's really where the, the, the value creation is, right? Because you're connecting, you said trucks are often half full. So you guys are finding, I guess, you're managing yield, right? So, and, and, you're, and you're kind of cross, like, yeah. So talk to me about that what the early days looked like, um, how you brought that together. Is it because of your engineering background that you were able to write? Did you write the first version of the the app or? Yeah, so I was very, I mean, my co-founder is actually our CTO. So he was yep. the one who, who built it in the early days. And uh, I think, you know, really what is our technology? So, you know, it's become even bigger than that now. It's not just filling idle capacity in trucks. It's actually buying baseload capacity in networks and, um, but again, generally underutilized mm. networks where we can find massive, um, effectively helping those small businesses to come together. Yes, and and get huge amounts of leverage. So, but still filling the capacity in networks, whether it's the line haul, whether it's the, you know, the pickup where most trucks are delivering lots of things to neighbourhoods and then they're going back empty. Yes. Um. So yeah, our te- what our technology does though is actually starts to build connect networks together. Yes. So if I wanted to send your water bottle from here to um, Azerbaijan, yes, uh, it would actually be picked up by one provider. It would then move to a second provider, which then gets transferred to Azerbaijan, and then a third provider, probably Azerbaijan Post at the end, yes. will actually deliver it. That's three different ways, and what we do is we connect all that together yes. with one label, one tracking, one customer support. It's all us. Because we know the most important thing for a small business is not to become an expert in logistics. Yes. It's actually to be able to say, I've sold this thing, you know, press a button, somebody take it, and then no, I'm going to get delivered at the other end. So I'm curious, how come, you know, the FedExes or the Australia Posts of the world, how come they don't either buy you guys out or compete with you guys on margin? I think this is one of the interesting um, things around incumbency. Yes. Um, and if you can find, I mean, we were very fortunate. We did find a, effectively a, a, a functional monopoly. Yes. Is the way I think about it. Um, and the cool thing about finding a functional monopoly, for example, if you've got 85% market share. Yes. For small business. And uh, it doesn't make sense in some ways to put your prices down by 10% because you're not going to get 10% more market share mm. as a result. Yes. So, you know, this is where you get really interesting opportunities. Yes. You know, if we're going to save you a dollar a parcel yes. or a dollar fifty a parcel or whatever, it's very hard to compete. Yes. In that space. And I think that's where um, they call it counter positioning. Um, another great book, uh, The Seven Powers. Again, I don't know if you know, that's, that's, it's about what are your, 
what can your powers be, which are powers of both benefits and barriers. And for a lot of early stage companies, counter positioning is amazing, you know? Mm -hmm. And we realized that, yeah, being an alternative that is cheaper and more reliable, more, you know, more convenient, right? It's very hard to compete when you are the incumbent. So I'd love to switch gears. Talk to me around kind of this idea of building, I guess, eco-friendly businesses. You guys are a B Corp as well. Um, You've dedicated most of your life to this. What's changed over the decades? I think the, yeah, we, I mean, I've, from the very early days, I um, used to do a lot of work with uh, the United Nations Environment Program and, and, and all these other areas. Yes. And I, I think from the very beginning, um, I love the thesis that, you know, businesses need to have a purpose. If you're not clear about why you should exist and that why is linked to some sort of positive environmental or social outcome, then it's very hard to sustain you through all the ups and downs of, you know, the startup journey. Yes. And so from day one, I love the idea of saying, I want my business model to be deeply aligned with my purpose. Yes. And so when we're thinking about Sendle, again, our purpose is effectively level the playing. We call it shipping that's good for the world. You know, level the playing field between big and small um, and help them compete and also and, and I guess this is the big shift that's happened in the, you know, since we since we started. Also, do it in a way that takes full responsibility for the the impact of shipping, which is why every parcel we've ever sent, you know, has been well, one. We try to be more find more efficient routes, and we're even starting to convert some of our network to solar. Yeah, wow. But uh, but you know, everything else where we are, we, we've basically taken responsibility for the emissions and planted sufficient trees in order to to make sure that's all 100% carbon neutral. And, you know, for us being a B Corp was actually a way of, of writing that deeply into the DNA yes. of the company and also having an independent verification that, yes, you're doing what you said you would do. But, yeah, for me, and the, the big, in some ways that's, again, for those founders, you know, out there who are just starting their business, there's, there's things that may not feel important in the early days. Yes. Which is, I think, your purpose and your culture. But what happens, the further, the more islands you visit, the further down that journey you go, you know, the more important those things become. Mm. And the seeds, you know, uh, the, the seeds that you plant in the early days, I'm going to think about the culture of my business. I'm going to think about how I like to operate and the people I like to have around me. I'm going to think about the purpose of my business. Why should we exist? The earlier you can think about those things, I can promise you the more dividends will get paid when you're successful, mm-hmm. you know, in three years, four years, five years time, because those are the strategy credits you've built for yourself. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I, who are actually in the trenches only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast from Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. 
You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. So let's talk about the planet. Are you optimistic around the future of the planet? Uh, I, I look, I'm a natural optimist. Yes. In, in a lot of things. I, I'm pessimistic about our speed. You know, I think one of the things we're, we're realizing, um, whether it's, um, you know, just the catastrophes, the environmental disasters we've seen everywhere, you know, whether it's Texas freezing or Australia being flooded or whatever it might be, this stuff is not going away and we're in for a really rocky time and a lot of, you know, a lot of folk are going to be, um, you know, displaced and, and hurt and and generally those who are the uh, you know the the most disadvantaged, and and so I'm very pessimistic about speed, yes, at which it's going to take and what's going to what that transition is going to cause. I am optimistic that there are so many solutions out there, and, and I think about us like if we can be more affordable, right, more convenient, uh, you know, a better delivery performance than these giant postal monopolies, and do it while taking responsibility for our conditions, why can't they? Mm. And it really is about will and it's about customers saying, you know, this is what we need, you know, this is what we demand. Um, and so, yeah, so from that point of view, I can see the trans, I can see the solutions really there already, yeah. but it's the transition, it's the lock-in effects that we currently have. How do we, how do we move through those very, very quickly? Mm-hmm. Talk to me around challenges. So it sounds like you guys have grown incredibly fast throughout the years. What have been some of your biggest challenges? And also, you said that you mentioned that you guys are fully remote. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, all startups, you know, the, the one of the biggest challenge actually is focus. Yeah, um, you only have think, one product though. Well, this is this is the cool thing, right? Like we only have one product, but it's not just about the one product. Like you can have multiple traction channels, so you can have multiple markets, and you know, like that lining up. It's always tempting. It's always tempting to add more, right? And and I think one of the things is you know and and add more not even you know features into the product, right? One of our my biggest lessons, um, you know, around startups again is uh, what is the most valuable resource for a startup is time, right? Time is the thing that will define whether or not you succeed. I think because time is for some, how much runway do you have? How long until people catch up? You know, how much how much motivation does the team like? Everything's about time, and what's the antidote to, to speeding up time is actually focus. And so, really, we we used to joke, um, you know, we, we were lucky because we only have one. You know, we focus very much on the small business side of it. Yes, and that allows us to make choices in the product. Yes. Um, so even the booking page for us. Yes. Right. We try to make it the simplest way of booking a parcel and it's like you have to be a bouncer for that page you know every feature wants to get on that page you've got to be really really strict and say i'm sorry no we don't don't need that we don't need that we don't need that because it's amazing how much can creep in and we've made many mistakes where we'll you know add something and it's like wow that sounded like a good idea but actually only two percent of people were using it like why did we you know what i mean like let's keep it really really simple or let's focus you know, um, in the early days, again, we were one. You know, we have a lot of lot of um, focus for ad hoc delivery, and great, fantastic. You can, but we're not building for them, 
right? We're building for the small business e-commerce sector. Yes. And so that's one of the biggest things is learning that. Um, I think the other challenge, uh, particularly as we get bigger, is just making sure we remain true to culture, right? Hiring is probably the biggest biggest leverage decision that any any entrepreneur, any manager, any leader can make. It's a, it, it really is the critical one. And, you know, we, we have a very strict way of thinking about how we hire. Can you tell me more about that? Um, yeah, we have. Uh, so firstly, I, I mentioned culture before. We we have what we call the five H's. Yep. Um, so, and this is in order. Um, as you might know, everything's a model in my head. So. Yes. But um, in order, um, humble, honest, happy, hungry, and high-performing. Those are your five values? They're the five. Yeah, that we think of them as virtues as much as values, but yes. they're, they're, they're the five values and we're very, very particular about that because we want we want high performers. Yep. We want, they need to be more humble than high performing. Yes. We want hungry people. Yes. Right? Ambitious, but they have to be more honest than they're hungry. Yes. And we really find that they cascade. So, you know, one of the first things we do is try and stay true to that because we believe that that's the thing that helps that helps teams to thrive. Yes. Right. We don't. We don't. We really don't like the, you know, um, you know, someone who's incredibly, you know, high performing, but an ego with a giant ego, because that will just ultimately mean that, you know, it makes harder to work with. So, so we're very particular about that. And then we we have what we call hell yeah recruiting, which is, um, you know, around the values, around the role and the skills, um, and it really is that there's there's three answers to every question. Um, there's, you know, it's like, would you like a coffee? There's, yes, I'd love a coffee. There's, no, I wouldn't love a coffee. You're like, hell yeah, I'd love a coffee, right? And there's something there around the emotives, like engaging both your type one and type two, you know, thinking yes. around your analytical thinking, but also your your pattern matching, your gut. Yes. And we really, um, as part of our recruitment process, we say it's hell yeah recruitment. Right? Unless the candidate is a hell yeah, that's actually a no. Yep. Because it's actually the yes, it's the tepid where you think, oh, maybe they're, they're actually the probably the, the, the least good recruitments you can make, mm-hmm. particularly for a startup with limited resource. And so, you know, I, we, we keep on checking ourselves, but, you know, how do we get to hell yeah? In fact, how do we get to hell yeah for all of our one-way decisions in the business is, is one of the things we try to do. One-way decisions. Yeah, um, there's you know every day. I mean, generally you're making decisions all the time, every day. Yes, and all and and a lot of those decisions are reversible. Um, I think Amazon calls them one-way doors and two-way doors, right? Yes, we I think of them as reversible and irreversible. So a lot of decisions are reversible decisions. Like um, you know, um, and ideally, you know, you can roll back a feature. You can do you know, particularly yeah. if you know in the in the thought of agile as you know if you're doing lots of small incremental continuous deployment so the things you're making lots of reversible decisions yes but there's some decisions that are just once you've made them it's very hard to go back and that can be anything from which market do we pursue who do i who do i who invests in the business right like um but one of the biggest i think you know very you know one way decision is actually who do you hire and the reason why that's one way is, one, you've made a commitment to them and they've made a commitment to you. And this is, it's a really important commitment that you're making. But secondly, from a cultural perspective, 
right? You you you're changing the culture with every single person that add, that you add to the business, and so that's why you, that all you know, in some ways, for the reversible decisions, you should be making them as quickly as you can, right? And you know, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. For the irreversible decisions, the one-way decisions, it's like how do we get to hell yeah, mm-hmm. right? And it's okay to take more time on that. Ideally, you time bound it, but it's okay to work it because because also it's those one-way decisions, like some of the big architectural decisions of the business. You know, if you don't have hell yeah, right? It just means working it more because that's where the real the real innovation will come from. Right. When you're trying to solve something, my co-founder and I, you know, there's been certain times when it's like, I mean, he's really smart. I'm, you know what I mean? He's much smarter than me. And, you know, the two of us are like, we're not, we, we can't, we're not highly at this yet. And then eventually we solve it. And it's like, oh my gosh, that's going to change everything. And we both get to hell yeah. And we know that, you know, with real confidence, we can step into that one way decision. Yeah. I love that analogy. Have these hell years you guys have ever been wrong? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, we're wrong all the time. And, and but you must be right more often than not to get where you guys are. I mean, I mean that's that's why you need to take the time. But yeah, I think you can definitely. I mean, recruiting, you sometimes get it wrong. Yeah, of course. Um, uh, yeah, even market focus. We've had, had times when, you know, we've gone and, wow, we didn't see that. Um, you know, and, and that's, I think, the whole journey. And I actually, you know, again, you've got to fall over many, many times before you can learn to walk. Um, and again, yeah, the the key is, you know, how do you get that feedback? How do you make sure you're taking those, you know, those lessons and then incorporating it back into, um, you know, the core? So been building Sendal since 2014, almost 10 years now coming on. What's been your greatest fall that you could share with us and the greatest lessons that you've learned from that? Uh, I think, and I won't talk about any people stuff because I yeah, think that's always course. you know. And we, um, but I do. Uh, I'll take a, uh, you know, we we when we started off in the US, um, for example, um, we totally we took the Australian model, yeah. and uh, which was, you know, which was working well, and uh, we started building out our network. And yes, and one of the things we we. Again, should have known at the time, but we, we we were far too regional in our approach, and we hadn't realised, again, in some ways, you know how, you know how important it was to make sure you could become a truly national carrier. Mm. And in the early days, I think we, you know, came across completely differently to how we wanted to, and that was a real market positioning decision uh, where we, that we had to roll back, but we probably lost six months. In that journey, yes, and as I said, in startup, everything's time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I can, we've made so many mistakes on the on the way, but you know, just thinking, one of those big things of like not spending that time, not having that time, to to find, you know, the deeper insight, particularly when you're making these big decisions, is is will will, you know, sometimes you can be lucky, sometimes it's like, wow, we should have seen that. You talk about decisions. Um, I think about decision making a lot because fundamentally, to reach a certain level of you know, I guess success in your business, you have to be right more often than wrong. You'd agree with that, right? Can you talk us through your decision making process or anything that we we could learn from your 
how you approach decision making. You talked about the how yes, like anything we can learn from. Yeah, I think the I think there's two things. One is um, in the early days, again, it's a small team. Yeah, you're sort of making decisions together on the fly. On the fly, um, you know, strategy. It's sort of strategy made out of fairy floss. Yeah, and blown away, right? Like it really is. Just and winging it. But winging it a bit, and and just understanding. I I think of um, this is where your purpose and understanding your model comes in because uh, another analogy there is it's it is mountain climbing, right? You're trying to climb up a mountain yes. to get to the next the you know next valley question milestone whatever it is, and you're you know sometimes hopefully as, as long as you know what the top of that mountain is going to be. You can go down this area and you've suddenly hit a bluff and or whatever and you can't go any further. Okay, we'll have to backtrack and go back up again. So the key there is, yeah, making breaking big decisions into small ones if you can, making them quickly, you know, wandering your way up that mountain. The, again, the hell yeah ones are the ones, which mountain are we going to climb? Yes. Right? Like those, yes. they become really, really big because once you're on this, it's very hard to move to that one. Um. I think the other thing, though, is as you get bigger, um, I always think of this, the founder journey is like you're taking hats off, mm. right? And you're putting those hats on people who are much better than you. Yes. At wearing that hat. Yes. And then it's about how do you make sure that you know you're really that they're they're making they're helping them to make the decisions, right? Like, um, and not taking the fun of solving the problem away. And I think one of that that that's a hard journey. You know, for you know, for for a lot of folk, because you can sometimes see the solution, but you know, you're not gonna, you know, like let's not take the fun of, well, you think you can, and, and but by the way, you're probably wrong. Um, but you know, you got to not take the fun of making the decision, solving the problem away from that. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting transition when you start a company as as a founder, co-founder, and you have the title CEO. You're not really a CEO, mm. right? But then as your company, everything off. Yeah, that's right. But then as your company grows, you actually do have to become the CEO and you have to really transition your leadership abilities. Yeah. And uh not everyone lasts that journey. Yeah. It's a it's a you know, again, that's why talking to other folk is really useful. And yeah, I think it, it is that, you know. I often think it's funny when you're when you're when you're building a, a, a company, when you're when you're an entrepreneur, you actually yes. you're actually building three products. I find this is this is a really useful framing as well. Like the first product you're building is the product for your customers. Yep. If that's not awesome, yep. And then nothing else matters. So you got to build this product. You got to get product market fit for customers. But then you realize, for venture back stuff, the second product you're building is actually the product for investors. Mm. Right, you got to get product market fit there. Yes, you got to understand that market. You got to talk to a lot of folk. Yeah, you got to make an attractive investment. These guys want to multiply their capital. Yep, and you got to realize that they have a mandate. Um, it's not about, you know, like and but again, if you can't do things just, the, 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 it's got to be founded on that. Yes, customer product, right? Yes, like correct. a lot of that other stuff. But then the final thing you realize, you're actually building a third product, and that's the product you build for your team. Mm. And if you think about it. A company is a place where a whole lot of people come together to accomplish something, right? The company is a product that you you know every team member is using yes. to to do the best, hopefully the best work of their careers. Yes, and you're also competing in a talent market. 
right? You've got to have a product market fit in that space mm. um, in order to get the best people. Because again, if you can't get the best people, then you can't build the best product right back to the customer. And so really thinking about that and what happens is, you know, in the early days, you know, you'll probably think very, very deep in the, the customer product and then you'll have more people to help on that. Then you'll get deep into the investor product. Frankly, you know, once a company gets a certain scale, you're spending a lot of your time on that third bit. Yeah. How do I create the best company possible for really, really great folk to do their very best work? And it's it's often forgotten, like it, it's so easy to forget that businesses are built by people and it's your job as the CEO to make sure you've got the best possible people and the right people in the bar. Yeah. But yeah. it's often forgotten. Like a lot of people don't talk about hiring. Hmm. Yeah, hiring is the one, you know, hiring and then, you know, culture. You know, what is, you know, I strove I, I, I stro- for a long time to find out a great definition of culture because it's such a, Mm. One of those words that sort of used yeah, all thrown around, place. Place. yeah. Um, yeah. And the one I eventually found, which which is the one I like, is culture are the decisions we make without thinking about them. Mm. So it's a non-conscious decisions. Yes. So you think about it like you you might join a company for the first week, you're very conscious of everything you're doing. Yes. Do I speak up in this meeting? Do I not? Do I? You know what I mean? Like here's you know. Do I swear? Do I like whatever it might be, or you go home, you reflect on it. What, what, what happens is eventually, and say you, you speak up in a meeting and get shot down, right? Yes. What's going to happen is next time you might not speak up, mm-hmm. and suddenly you've got an. Eventually, it becomes part of this unconscious. This you're not sitting there thinking. It just becomes an unconscious decision that you're making. Yes. Right. And I think that the, the culture is really made up of all the unconscious decisions that everyone's making all the time, right? And that's why it's so hard to copy. Yes. Because you can't suddenly go, hey, everybody start unconsciously making decisions just like they make Yes. unconsciously. You know, you can't do that, right? Because yes. that's a conscious yes. piece. And so really thinking, you know, so that's why, you know, if, if something if something that's, that's not aligned with your values happens and no one calls it, what are you really doing? You're saying... You know, it's okay for everyone else to unconsciously do the same thing. So I'm curious, uh, the five H's. I really like that. How long have how long have you guys had those, and when did they come into play? Uh, we we actually had them from day one. Day um, one, they yeah. haven't changed. Yeah, and so you haven't reworked your values since day one. We um, it was funny that came from the sort of people you know, lots of deep reflection around who I and my co-founder we like to work with. So I think yeah. it was. And in 2019, we did sort of dust them off and say, okay, are these, are these really the company values? Are they? Yep. So we went to whole team. Leadership the team or whole, whole company? Team, whole company. Company-wide. Okay. Yep. And um, we said, imagine they don't exist. Uh, the way we did it is we said, tell us about the behaviors. Yes. Because uh, one of the things we hadn't translated them really into deeply into behaviors. And we said, tell us about the behaviors you see or would like to see in the business. And, um, you know, these are all things, uh, you know, you know, shoot for the stars and, you know, uh, uh, you know, um, listen, gent- you, know, uh, you know, give feedback, you know, uh, frankly, but gently. And, you know, all these sorts of behavioral statements that came out and 
um, fascinating enough, when we grouped them back in, they just happened, you know, they all grouped around the five H's, which wasn't surprising because the selection bias from recruitment was around those things, but yes. it was for us a real confirmation. Yeah. All the five wow. H's, but the, the other thing we realized, and this is why I mentioned them, there's not virtues as bad news, is that we, we also realized that even humble, right? Like from an Aristotelian virtue perspective, humble actually has guardrails around it. One side is not ego-driven, but it's also not too, it's not submissive. Mm-hmm. And what came out of that process was realizing that each of these things is not, a, they're not a, an extreme. They're a constant battle between two extremes, mm-hmm. right? Arrogant and submissive. Yes. Honest, right? Is not dishonest, but it's also not insensitive brutality, mm-hmm. brutally honest. Yes. Right, and so you know, happiness is not, you know, unconstructive negativity. It's also not blind optimism, and and so all of that. That's what really. That's how the values evolved is to be much more sophisticated around what are the behaviours that are connected to the values, but also what are they not? Yeah, that's a really cool test. The fact that you guys just kind of wipe the canvas slate clean and put it out to the team, and you still came back to the original values because um, oftentimes when you do have I guess new people joining or you you know you probably I'm sure you've gone through a few different versions of your leadership team people want to make their mark too mm. and uh, it feels nice to be able to change things within a company doesn't it and talk about that focus right it's always easy to add things how yeah. to take them away and, and you know changing your values is again one of those one-way decisions, right? That's really, really deep. But yeah, and I, I think having values that mean something, right? We don't we don't stick the five H's on the wall. We're not that sort of company. Yep. That you know you log into your whatever and yep. you know no, it's but but it's more that you know actually very helpful that they're in a they're in a framework and an order. Yes, you are know, everyone. Everyone can use them. Yeah, hundred percent. Right. We do what we said we would do, right? That's really about you know, high-performing and honesty coming together. Yeah. Yeah. Good. All right, I'm really enjoying this conversation. We have to work towards wrapping up, though. A uh, couple of last questions. What advice would you give to any founders that want to incorporate eco-friendly values into their business or kind of add in an element of for good? Yeah, I think the first, and we covered it a little bit, um, you've got to answer why. You know, um, putting it in after will will not work, really? right? So you've got to think because because it, you eventually we found to not be authentic. Yeah, right. It's got to be a very authentic. Why should this business exist? How does that align with the positive environmental purpose yes. and positive social purpose? Um, because if you you know, firstly, if you can do that, then it's easy to integrate. Yeah. Right, you've really deeply aligned your business model and that purpose. Yes. Right, and it's also not going to be something you jettison. Mm. Right, when t- times go tough, because the moment you do that, you're going to lose all of your credibility. So I think, you know, I think what we're realizing is, you know, the future of business are the businesses who do have to have a purpose. Yes. Your 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 license to operate, like your implicit license to operate as a business in the future, I truly believe, will be around. You know, does this business have a positive benefit for society? 
in some way. Yeah. And you're thinking about that early. And consumers are much more conscious of this more than ever. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, you know, we find, um, uh, uh, in fact, we, we did some research in this and into this as well. And, you know, values alignment. So it's not about necessarily eco-friendly or, you know, I want to shop small or I want to whatever it might be. But it's actually, um, I think it was 70% of purchases, particularly if all else is equal on price. Yes. Right? And sometimes more than price will actually buy from a business whose values align with theirs. And that's very, that's a deep, deep thing, particularly for a small startup. Yes. A small business. That's where you can get really deep competitive advantage, Mm. right? Where you can say, okay, yeah, these are my values, right? This is what I stand for as a business. And you know what? That's how you can create loyalty by aligning those with the values of the people who are buying from you. And that's where I think, yeah, thinking about being, you know, environmentally friendly, thinking about, you know, and who am I? Who am I here to support? Think about who am I as an as a as an entrepreneur? What do I stand for? That, you know, that building that into your business, both your business model and your brand and everything, is a much more authentic way of going about it rather than I'm doing bolt this. On. How do I bolt on yeah. X? Uh, one question I wanted to ask you about is your book, the sixth wave around how to succeed in a resource-limited world. What compelled you to write that book? Um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a total nerd. Let's see how it worked this out yet. And uh, I actually did my PhD in innovation theory, um, looking at basically how national innovation systems evolve. Uh, really, you know, innovation theory is about how to get technology to market. Yes. And the institutions that make that happen. And one of the things that became, as I was doing research for that and working at CSIRO, was... Uh, there's these big waves of innovation yeah. um, called Kondratiev waves. And they start with a lot of disruption. They coalesce around uh, effectively um, you know, particular technology choices, whether it's AC power or Microsoft Windows, whatever it might be, and then eventually end in a global depression or global recession. And what was very clear is that uh, you know, one of the big things that's going to power the future was actually the convergence of the digital and the natural world. We're seeing this more and more even today. Yep. And uh, what that unlocks, where's the value that we're going to be getting? And a lot of that was actually around resource efficiency. And so um, continuing down that path, um, it was a really exploration of what are the business models where you could actually do, you know, effectively be more efficient with the world's resources, but actually create incredible value. And so um, those are things like exactly what we do with Sendle. Waste equals opportunity. Right, an empty part of a truck, effectively, or a route that's not fully utilized, is effectively shipping air. We can ship, instead why don't we ship a parcel? You're going to save money. You're going to save the planet. You're going to do a whole. You know, you're going to um, uh, yeah, effectively improve the utilization. Now, the second one was selling services, not products. Right, thinking about like in some ways, we understand that it's not. It's, the, it's actually the experience of parcel delivery. Is the is the is what matters, right? What matters is not the trucks on the ground or the logo on the shirts or whatever. It's actually do you do what you said you would do? Mm. Um, and that again, so many businesses. Again, Uber doesn't sell cars; it sells mobility. Yes, right. Like really thinking about what the service is. And so, yeah, I mean, you can, there's more of them in there. Yes, um, you know, bits are global, atoms are local. 
um, but really was just finding these these really interesting ways in which you could yeah, basically line up resource efficiency um, with economic growth. And and I think, you know, your earlier question on, you know, am I optimistic? I think the real optimism around environmental, you know, um, improvement is when we when we get rid of this whole concept that it's actually the environment versus growth. Right? A lot of the debate has been all or nothing. You can't have progress and the planet. Well actually, you know what, once two hundred years ago it was uh, you know, it was labor, right? It was the same thing. Labor and, you know, if you and, and economic growth were were tightly coupled. If you needed more tables, you needed more people to make more tables. Then we actually found that we could actually use machines and decouple those things. Now we talk about labor productivity being one of the big measures of economic growth. Well, I think the same thing is going to going to happen in the future. You know, the productivity of our raw resources, yes, right, is going to be that that what we want to measure, not the consumption of them. That's gold. Thank you for sharing. Um, we're going to move to the hot seat round. Four questions, rapid fire. What's the most important value in your business? Uh, Humble. What inspires you to be a better founder and leader? Uh, the people I work with. I get to work with such amazing team members, and you know, just you know, when we come together and really see our way through something, it's incredible. What's your favourite thing to receive in the post or mail? Gosh, uh, I'd say. Well, I, I um. You know, every time I open a, a box, particularly from my sister or someone like that, you know, it's always like you're getting a little present. Yeah. In fact, that's the cool thing about parcel delivery is like, if you think about it, how do we turn delivery from being a chore to a joy in every single, you know, we don't don't necessarily get many, many presents as you get older, but no. every single delivery to our home is a present. So, mm. Last question. If you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who, who would it be and why? I would love to. I would love to go and talk to Steve Jobs about his journey, yeah, and find out how did he maintain focus throughout all the ups and downs of that of that journey, because mm-hmm. I think that that was an example of where someone really went through things, you know, both the positive and the negative, but had incredible focus to drive a company through many iterations of its existence. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, James, thank you so much. This is an awesome conversation, and uh, really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.